Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Sermon title this morning is Hosea from Hosea 3. The sermon title is Get the Girl. Get the Girl. That's the sermon title this morning. Starting in verse 1. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell in mine, dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household goods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. Adultery is insanity. It's vile, it's evil, it's wicked, and it's all too common. Adultery is motivated by narcissism and covetousness. Narcissism and covetousness. It's either a mentality that says, she wants me because I am something, or it's I want her because she is something. It's narcissistic, I'm being looked at and desired, or it's I'm looking to somebody else, I'm looking at her and coveting her. She wants me or I want her, or ladies, he wants me and I want him. Lust of the flesh, lust of the flesh, forbidden passions draw men and women into the evil thing called adultery. It's betrayal in its highest form. If you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't experienced, you know somebody who has walked in that, who has been married to somebody and then, unfortunately, decided through the lust of the flesh to cheat and commit adultery. It's treason. And it often happens by way of attention. It's like a dopamine hit. It becomes an addiction. Flirt, flirtation becomes an emotional connection, becomes a physical connection. And so often we hear of these adulterous affairs, and we hear of them and we think, how on earth could that happen? And we wonder, I mean, what in the world, how, how the time and the place, how did all the things come together for that to happen? And you think, man, why in the world would this person do that or that person do that? Because it doesn't make sense at all. Look at the life they have and then we know the situations I'm talking about where it's just a head scratcher. Adultery is an evil thing. The enemy of our soul and our flesh can convince a husband or a wife that their spouse is against them and that that againstness that they're experiencing is contrasted with the person at the workplace or the person online or the person wherever, where they may be doing recreation or something like that, and that person seems to be for them. And so you have in the home a person that seems to be against you, and then you have somewhere else somebody that seems to be for you, and all of a sudden your affection or your thoughts get tied into this person instead of your spouse. The religion of the hour plays into this as well because it says things like you deserve this, you're happy, you you deserve so many good things in life, you're worth it, you've got to love yourself, 
And any speech at all about denying yourself is anathema in our day. Like you're not supposed to deny yourself. You're supposed to affirm yourself and love yourself and take care of yourself. And so Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself. And that seems to be suppression of everything that the world is telling you is yours. Adultery is terrible. It's just an awful thing. Hosea experienced it. God called him into a relationship knowing that he would experience this with the woman whom he would call him to marry. Don't let yourself, just very practically for married couples, do not let yourself get away with flirtation with anybody. Don't let yourself get away with lust or daydreaming about a life with another person that is not your wife or is not your husband. You don't need to be friends with those who are the opposite sex. We are friends with those who are the opposite sex in so much as we are friends with friends. Like I am friends with the friends of, or the wives of my friends by way of being couple friends. But I'm not texting. You know, I said, uh, I think in a podcast one time, I said, you know, I'm friends with Ryan and Tyler, which means I'm friends with Mallory and Tara. But I don't text Mallory and Tara and say, hey, you guys want to go to the mall together? If people actually go to the mall anymore. You don't do that. That would be dishonoring to Jordan, and it would be very inappropriate. It would just be inappropriate. You don't need to be friends with other women. You just don't. Now, you can be friends. You go to a small group. I'm not saying you should ignore each other and say, sorry, you're a woman. I'm not going to talk to you. That's not what I'm talking about at all. You guys get the point. But adultery is betrayal. It's a breaking of a vow. Sexual immorality will earn you a place and a portion in the lake of fire. It's a serious deal. Gomer, in the story of a Hosea and Gomer, as their relationship begins to unfold, and as soon as it comes on the scene in Hosea chapter 1, we see the scene close in Hosea chapter 3, and we don't hear anything else the rest of this book about Gomer and Hosea. Nothing else. So how's this going to end for Gomer, the adulterer? How is it going to end for Israel, the adulterer? And so we're going to see. We're going to take a look. We're going to see. Is there forgiveness? Is there hope? And in short, there is hope. There is forgiveness. If you have committed adultery, there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And that's the only place there's forgiveness. There's nothing else that you can do to get forgiveness. It's only in Christ Jesus. Marriages can be restored. Relationships can be restored. Shame can be removed. But through repentance, not through denial. Not through excuse making or acting like you're a victim. Take responsibility and move forward. Today we're going to see the end of Hosea and Gomer's relationship. Not the end as if it's the end totally of the relationship. The end by way of silence. We don't know what else happened with them after today. But first, we see Hosea's call continues. Look at at chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Goodness gracious, they love raisin cakes. Hosea's call continues. Go get Gomer. Go get her. Her name is not listed here, but we know based on the story from chapter 1, 2, and 3 that he's talking about Gomer because he was told that she's going to be an adulterous woman. That her way of of patterns of behavior that were there when he married her are going to continue after he marries her. And at this point, we find that Gomer has left Hosea and somehow is in a relationship with another man. 
This is not just a weekend fling. This is not something that's just happening under the table that he doesn't know about. She is now living with this other man, and somehow or another, this man has claim on her. She has put the knife in the side, and it's like she has twisted it as she has put it into his side. It's possible that she's even married to another man. We know for sure because of what Hosea had to do to get Gomer back that there is some sort of tie with this man. It's not just as easy as going to the house and saying, you're coming with me. It's going to cost something to Hosea if he's going to get her back. And God tells him, go get her. And the question that I have is, okay, why? It tells us why, but why? What has she done to deserve Hosea going and rescuing her? She's cheated on him time and time again, and now she is in such a relationship with this man. It's more than texting. It's more than Facebook Messenger. It's more than only having a relationship at work or something like that. She is now living with him. She is present with him and built a relationship. This man actually loves her, it says. It says, who is loved by another man. There are relationship ties here. In this adulterous relationship, you see love is there. The Bible uses the word love. And so here's Gomer, here's Hosea, and God says, go get her again. He went and got her once, and now he's called to go and get Hosea again. She's done nothing to deserve it. She should, I mean, this would be justice, rot in her adultery. And if that was the end of the story, everyone would be satisfied. If she was just miserable all the days of her life, the rest of her life, she would have gotten what she deserved. In the heart of every human being still to this day, because the... Law of, law of God is written on the hearts of every man to a general degree. And we look out in all creation and we know from the inside out that there is a thing called right and wrong. And the problem with mankind is that we continue to suppress the truth. We keep pushing it down, pushing it down and pushing aside, closing our eyes and plugging our ears and going our own way. But mankind does care about right and wrong, even if they don't know why something is right and wrong. There's still very much in the secular world language of right and wrong, sin and righteousness. Even with what we see on TV and the misguided understanding of justice, there are still cries from the inside out from people about justice. We want things to be right and not wrong. And as misguided as it may be, you see it there. The cry of the human heart is we want justice. And if Gomer just stayed there and was miserable the rest of her life and she even ended up being mistreated we would see it as somewhat of cosmic justice. She doesn't deserve anything from Gomer. If Gomer, or excuse me, Hosea, if Hosea didn't go and rescue her, we would say, yeah, she's been left. She's been abandoned. Notice Gomer is not stated to be a victim in any of this. The story is not one of saying, look at the plight of Gomer. Again, her name is not mentioned. It's mentioned in chapter 1. But all we know of her is that she is a woman who has made bad decision after bad decision. Certainly, she had been mistreated along the way. But the story here is not, hey, Gomer is a victim of a bad sexual environment in ancient Israel. She is a culprit in the madness. And it's important to note, we live in a day, our day today, very much so where we want to make Gomer the victim of this story. We want to strip responsibility from the woman in the story and only blame the men in the story. And ladies, the Bible gives you the dignity of saying, you sin. Gomer was not a victim in this. And we live in this day 
in this modern narrative where ladies can do no wrong whatsoever. And that's not the story with Gomer. Gomer was responsible for her actions. This is represented, what I'm saying right here, and you might think, man, this is a, a weird point to make, but it's very important that we make this point. So the, the SBC this year, the Southern Baptist Convention down in Nashville, or down in, uh, not Nashville, was it Nashville? Yeah, down in Nashville. We go down to Nashville, and from the stage, there was a woman on stage passionately declaring things about abortion, and she made the point to say that women are also the victims in abortion. That women are victims of abortion. Women are not victims of abortion. It, it represents a massive overall theme that says, basically, anything that's wrong with women in society and down to the individual woman is the fault of everyone else. But the Bible declares women to be equal image bearers with men. And what that means is, ladies, you're responsible for your actions, as Gomer was responsible for her actions. This was not a product of a weird, over-sexualized, patriarchal environment. This is a product of the sin of Gomer. And she did not deserve to be rescued at all. She was not in distress in the sense that she is just this, uh, this woman who's been used and abused and finally somebody's going to see the value of Gomer. No, Gomer walked into these relationships knowing exactly what she was doing. God calls it adultery and that's what it was. And we see it right here that God calls sin, sin, no matter who does it. Sorry, modern day world. Women sin too, not just white dudes. She deserved nothing at all from Hosea or from God. And yet, God says to Hosea, go get her. And on the backdrop of Gomer's sinfulness, I want you to think about these themes. You think about the backdrop of your sinfulness. The backdrop of Israel's sinfulness. And don't let yourself victimize sinfulness. Yes, sometimes people are victims of the sins of other people. That is certainly true. But the sins that we are redeemed out of are the sins that we have committed. It's cosmic treason against a holy God. And we have stuck the knife in and turned to the God of the universe, doing what Gomer did to Hosea. And yet God says, go get her. Why does God say, go get her? And we see this allegory. We see this story. Verse 1b. Even as I, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love cakes of raisins. So th this is a one-to-one -one thing here. What we're seeing unfold in these five verses is what we see in chapter 1. We see as Hosea and Gomer go, so is God and Israel. There's the story. It's a one-to-one -one thing here. God is telling an allegory. He's demonstrating it through the life of this couple. God loves Israel even though Israel turned to other gods. That's other men. Even though Hosea, or excuse me, Gomer was doing what she was doing, Israel is doing what they are doing. And they are loving sacred cakes of raisins. Now most people believe that this had some sort of thing to do with pagan worship, the raisin cakes. But either way, even if they, it was a part of pagan worship practice, Israel is like Gomer, loved by another, worshiping false gods, enjoying delicacies like raisin cakes more than the worship of the Most High God. And it's silly. As silly and as 
horrible as the sin of Gomer was, it's as silly and horrible as the sins of Israel. You gotta see these stories. You gotta see them. You gotta see how painful this would have been for Hosea to love a woman and have children with her and then to see her go to other lovers. And here is Israel doing what Gomer did. I don't want to worship the Most High God. There he is back there, buddy. <laughs> There's no, I, see, I see Derek back there waving for Noah. You see him? And anyways, you guys will figure it out. <laughs> they said that God loved Israel. Why in the world would God love Israel? Why? They kept cheating on him, running from him, worshiping the Baals. To this day, such silly things keep people from worshiping the Most High God. Many people who want their Sundays to be a day of leisure or fun, they want their money and toys more than they want God. The worship of God for two hours in the Lord's day is too much, not as important as recreation or more work or sports or the TV. There are countless reasons, silly reasons, that people don't want to come to God. The suppression of truth is very convenient for the life they continue to want to live. But by the grace of God, there go I. Silly sins are always present. You see them everywhere. Raisin cakes for Israel. Silly things today as well. Just continues on. Silly idols are always just repackaged and they're presented from one society to the next and we indulge on them and we indulge on them and we enjoy the delicacies and they always and they continually keep us away from the worship of the Most High God. So what what does Hosea do in response to the Word of God? Go get her. So what's Hosea do? Could have been like Jonah. Said, I'm not going to Nineveh. No God, there's too much pain involved here. I'm not going to get her. I'm not going to rescue her. But what does he do? Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethlic of barley. So I bought her. For Gomer to go get his wife, Hosea to go get his wife, was going to cost him something. And you might think, well, he's got rights on her because they're married. They've, they've done the thing. They're married now. They've had a child together. Doesn't he have claim on his wife? And apparently at this point, again, she's so deep in this relationship that for this relationship to be restored, for this marriage to be restored, it's going to cost Hosea something. He was going to have to knock on the door. Imagine this scene. God's men do, do what God requires. And there's a gravitas to this. There was some under-the-table claim that this man had on her. And for Gomer to get... For Hosea to get his bride, he was going to have to reach into his pockets or his bank account. He was going to have to get the buried gold and to bring the jar and say, she's mine again, or the buried silver. He'd have to find her. He would have to get her. He would have to buy her, even though Gomer was already his. She was in enemy possession, in enemy territory. And here's what the prophet of God, the man of God did. He showed up. He obeyed. And he went and somehow or another, even though there were claims on his wife, he got her back. It doesn't say like it says with Abraham when he took his 300 men to go rescue his nephew. It doesn't say that he got his crew or his posse and he went to the door and said, hey, she's mine. It just says he went and got her. God's man. 
If this was made in movie form, you can see it. It's like a dark alley, you know, and it's a, a dangerous and a dark place. And God's man, with no fear in his eyes at all, walks to the door, bangs on the door, and he says, she's mine, I'm coming to get her, she's coming home with me. He got the job done. That's what God's men do. He went and he got his wife back. He showed up. He had to find out where she was. He had to do some, recon uh, some reconnaissance work. And he had to go, and he had to be the one that left his house. It wasn't that God sent Gomer home. It's that he had to leave his house and go out into that back alley, go over across the street, across the tracks, and he had to find her. And he had to buy her, and he bought her for 15 shekels of silver, a homer, and some barley. Exodus chapter 21 verse 32 tells us that the common price for a slave was valued at approximately 30 shekels. He bought her for 15 shekels. Silver, homer, and barley. So it cost him. She was apparently not viewed with very much value even by the man who claimed to love her. And he walks into there, and he gets her. Now, you remember the scene in Braveheart after his wife was killed, and William Wallace is walking up. It's in the first, it's like right before he takes the, the antlers and shoves it through that guy's neck. You remember, like, there's fire going, and the video and the scene just slows down, and, and William Wallace is walking really slowly, and you don't know there's like an ax behind him, and the fire is going uh, imagine the intensity of this scene. Like this guy probably had his cronies with him. And here is Hosea, the man of God, showing up. God's men get things done. God is with him. And Hosea went and got her. There ends up being a message to Gomer. Look at verse, verse 3. And I said to her, this is Hosea's words to his wife, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. The message is that Gomer must come home with him. She must dwell with him for many, many days. This is a period of time. It is a period of time, and in this period of time, she must not play the whore anymore. She must not live that way. She must not go back to that other man, even though that other man had those ties to her, had that love and affection for her. She must not go back to that man. And Hosea commits himself to her in saying, I will not run out on you. I will not play the whore. I will not do what you did to me. You must come to my house and dwell with me for many days, and I will be yours and you will be mine. What is this many days business? And we get to see what this many days business is with verse 4 and 5, because there was a message to Gomer, but then there's also a message to Israel. And we see that message to Israel in verse 4. So the structure here is go get her. He, wins, he, come, he goes and gets her at great cost to himself. And then in verse 3, you get a message to Gomer. And then in verse 4 and 5, you get a message to Israel. Look at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod, ephod or household goods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come and fear the Lord and to His goodness in the later days. 
Like the story we just heard, the children of Israel will dwell many days without king, prince, sacrifice, or pillar, ephod, or household goods. Likewise. Likewise. Huh? What did I say? Oh, household gods. You gotta have household goods. I mean, get those household goods out of there. My dad, he's always looking out for me, so thanks. Thanks, man. This is a reference to exile. Many days, and then there's gonna be a return. This would include Gomer being, you know, living and being with another man. So like that, Hosea, excuse me, Israel is going to be with another man. They're going to be somewhere else. There's going to be an exile in the land. And then there's going to end up being judgment in the end. They're going to return. It says in verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. So, is the end of the story going to be exile, or is the end of the story going to be return? And it clearly answers it for us. Israel's going to dwell in many days somewhere else, but then there's going to be a return. So exile, judgment, will not be the end, because God is going to do something. Because in verse 5, it says that the children of Israel will return. This is not a question mark, this is an absolute statement of what will be. And we see this in this message pre-exile Israel hears they're going to go and they're going to live in exile. They're going to be under the rule and the tyranny of another lover and with other gods. And then one day they are going to return. And in that return, we're told several things are going to happen. Number one, in that return, they're going to seek the Lord their God and David their king. So they're going to seek the Lord and they're going to seek the, they're going to seek the Lord their God and they're going to seek after the king. And they shall come in the fear in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. They will seek God, they will seek their King, and they shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. After Israel is redeemed, rescued, purchased, like Gomer was redeemed, rescued, and purchased, as Hosea redeemed her, something amazing is going to happen in Israel. Now, instead of chasing after other gods, there's going to be something fundamentally different about God's people. They're now going to seek the Lord rather than seeking false gods. They're now going to seek after the true king rather than listening and obeying to false kings. They're now going to fear the Lord rather than mock the Lord. They're now going to love Him for His goodness rather than mock Him as if He is not good. They're going to seek after God. This is messianic. It begins to point outside of itself. We begin to think about what Hosea chapter 1 said as it quotes from Romans and Galatians. And Hosea chapter 2 says as it points us to justice and love, we begin to think about something in the future. We begin to be told about something in the future about what God would do because the redemption from exile is going to be a metaphor. It's going to be a story. It's going to be allegorical to redemption from sin. It's going to be an allegory about what Christ would do. This is messianic. 
No longer will they love silly raisin cakes and run after other lovers. They will seek after God. And they will want King David. But King David is long dead. Generation after generation has come and gone. And David has been dead in the grave. Again, this is messianic because who is the root of David? Who is the true king? Who is the son of David? But we're told over and over again in the New Testament, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and better David. And this and many other Old Testament prophecies point to that fact. David will be back, God is telling His people. The king will be back. You will be back. You will be changed. How will David be back? How will you be changed? Well, that is by Jesus, the king. You see this connection with Jesus and David and David, their king, and that's an impossibility. There is no such thing as reincarnation. There is no such thing as David coming back from the dead in this life. But Jesus will be that great king. How is Jesus this great king? Well, Jesus, if you think about the contrast between Jesus and David and what God is doing inside of Israel and the promises that are held within these two verses... You think about who Jesus is and what Jesus has and you begin to see parallels between the life of David, the king, and the life of this king that they're going to one day seek after, that Israel is going to one day seek after. Jesus is the true giant slayer. He's the one who holds powers over dark forces. Remember when King David was yet a boy. Remember King Saul had a demon that tormented him. God sent an evil spirit. God's powerful over evil spirits, by the way. God sent an evil spirit to King Saul. You can read about this in 1 Samuel. And over and over again, this evil spirit would come to King Saul, and David would come along and play his harp. And as he played his harp, the demons, the dark spirits, would have to flee. Jesus is the king who has the evil one under his foot. And if you remember... The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says. And Jesus actually accomplished, we see these foreshadowings in the Old Testament, Jesus actually accomplished as the king the defeat of the enemy. He disarmed rulers and authorities, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says. We've got to think about the enemy of our soul who is called a roaring lion. We have to keep in mind that this roaring lion is disarmed of so much of his powers and is also, he's also been destroyed. And I don't exactly know how all those things work, but I know that Jesus did do what he came to do and he appeared to destroy the works of the devil and that's what Jesus did. The works of the devil are destroyed right now. And Jesus is the one who slays not just ten thousands, but he slays all of his enemies. David had limitations on who he could slay and who he could overcome. His kingdom was just in the Middle East, but Jesus is the king whose kingdom won't ever fall apart and whose borders won't be just in that Middle East area and region, but it will be from sea to shining sea. Jesus is the kingdom, is the king of a kingdom who will never fall apart, whose borders will be all across this world. Israel will seek this David. They will want this David. It says that after their return, they will seek the Lord their God. There will be something inside of them now that's fundamentally different. They will want God. And they will want David their king. Israel will seek this David. They shall fear the Lord in His goodness in the later days. Or the latter days. 
And they shall come to fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. What does this mean? The latter days. And Israel seeking the Lord in the latter days. Acts chapter 2 gives us insight into the biblical paradigm for timelines. You know, we, we see timelines all the time. And, and this isn't necessarily about eschatology, although it does have implications for that. But one of the things we have to keep in mind about the latter days the later days, because when we're talking about Israel in this moment, we're talking about you and I in this room, and we're going to hear that here in just a second. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 16 to 21, it says this, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. When the Spirit of God came upon the people of God at Pentecost, there were tongues happening, tongues of fire, languages of fire that came down upon them. And people were looking at them and mocking them, saying, look, they're drunk with wine. And then Peter says back, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And what Peter goes on to say is that th this is what's happening at Pentecost. It's the last days. The Spirit of God is upon us. There's prophecy everywhere. The Spirit of, of God is within us. The latter days have come. And from that fulfillment till today, we have lived in the last days. Verse 17, and in the last days it shall be. And we're told that's what's happening right now. That's what he says in verse 16. But that is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 2. So it means that the Israel spoken of in verse 5, back here in verse 5, in Hosea, what is being spoken of is not just ethnic Israel. Again, we got to keep this in mind. It's not just those who have been born of Abraham, but it's those who are in this room and across the whole earth that go by the name Christian. The redemption that we're being that we're talking about here today is the redemption that Christ will accomplish. Those who have been purchased, redeemed and re rescued by Jesus. We see ourselves in the face of Gomer again. And I want you to just picture this. You saw it when I was in verse 2. What did Jesus do for us? He came to seek and save that which is lost. Who were we? Just like Gomer. Rebellious, sinful, suppressing the truth, running our own way, doing our own things, loving false gods, enjoying delicacies of life like raisin cakes, not thinking a thing in the world of God, and even maybe paying lip service to God. But what has Christ done for us? He has come to us. This is the scene of all scenes. This is the Braveheart scene of all scenes. This is the Hosea going to rescue Gomer of all scenes that's ever been shown on a movie. This is something that happened in real life. Jesus actually came into enemy territory. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. And Satan did have some sort of claim on us. And Jesus came and said, no more. He defeated the works of the devil. He set you free, broke your chains, made you come alive. And now, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the things that are said about Israel, about one day what will be a reality for them, are a reality about you. You used to run from God, but now we have run to God. And we get the great privilege that only the redeemed have of seeking the Most High God. Drawing near to God as God draws near to you. The promise in James, if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. That is a promise that's only true for Christians. Only Christians, only the redeemed, only those that have been rescued by Jesus have this great privilege of seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we stand now in fear and trembling at the one who faced our enemy, the devil, who also faced the wrath of his heavenly father and who rescued those who were in the brothel of their own sin and rebellion and loved being there. And Jesus pulled us out of it. He really did. What are we to do? Like, what's the response? Because we hear in chapter 5 or chapter 3, verse 5, and the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear of the Lord and the goodness of their latter days. In the goodness in the latter days. So, what's spoken of in verse 5 is in the latter days. And we exist now in these latter days. So, what are we to do in the latter days? What will the Israel of God do? They will seek the Lord their God. Brother and sister in Christ, you are free to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. You can pursue Him and love Him, of course, all by His grace. But God has set you alive, given you a new heart, and now you get to do what non-Christians don't get to do. You get to seek the Lord and worship Him in spirit and in truth. We get to do this through spiritual disciplines. We get to do this for, through coming on the Lord's Day to worship. We get to do this through singing to Him. We get to do this through fasting. We get to do this through the Lord's table. We have the great privilege of waking up early in the morning and spending time with Him. We get to go into the Holy of Holies. We're not excluded from the Holy of Holies anymore. We get to boldly become, come before the throne of grace. We get to pray. Are you kidding? We get to pray with the assurance that we're being heard. Do you realize that a non-believer does not get to pray with the assurance of being heard? But now in these latter days, we get the assurance that the God of the universe hears us as we stand in the Holy of Holies and don't die. We can boldly come before the throne of grace, you get the great privilege of seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. You get to seek God. Friends, that is a wonderful thing. The Bible says about non-believers, about you before you were a Christian, that no one seeks God. You know what that means? That means that nobody seeks God. Imagine that. When it says, no one seeks God, no, what, one, no not one, it means that nobody seeks God, not even one. Meaning that nobody in the whole world, in the entire, entire existence of mankind, has ever sought after God unless they've been pulled out of the brothel already. And you and I were there, pulled out, and we get the privilege now in these latter days to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek Him. Seek Him. Pursue Him. This, this is... Get, man... Build some spiritual disciplines. Go on a run. Make time in your day to spend intentionally spending time with the God of the universe. This is what we get to do from the inside out. Don't you love Him? And when I say don't you love Him, I'm not talking about you love Him on your own. Of course, you've been made alive. But once we're made alive, don't you love God? This is what God does in us. We love Him. And in these latter days, we seek Him. What else do we do? We're free to worship our King David. I love my King. I love King David. And not King David of old. Very cool character. I, there's so much to learn from King David. He's a shepherd who could slay his ten thousands. He's a king who could rally armies. And he had mighty men around him who would fight to the death with him. He's a man's man. And he played the harp. And he wrote songs and poetry. And he sang to the Lord. And he danced before the Lord. He was a renaissance man before renaissance men. 
Commanded armies and commanded choirs. A unique man. But he's not the King David I adore. You see, I have a king that I follow. And I have a privilege of serving in his army. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has all authority in heaven and earth. Not just some of it. Not a partial amount. He is not limited by the authority of any country or any boundary. He is not limited by the devil himself. He has already destroyed the works of the devil. He is not limited by any man. And there is no man that can rise up and say to him, not me, not this way. There's no line in the sand that any man can draw and tell God, don't cross this line. Jesus comes where he wants to come and he does what he wants to do. He rules as a good king. He does, Chris, he does. He rules as a good king. We look for kings to follow, do we not? We look for part of the reason why so many people rallied around Trump. And Trump is not a man that I would want in a room with my wife. (laughs) Uh, Part of the reason the people rallied around him, that a lot of people and a lot of men voters in this country, because they're like, here's a guy that's not going to get pushed around. Here's a guy that doesn't care what people think about him. That people hate his guts and he gets up every day and he goes to work. That's admirable. No matter what you think about what he did, there's, there, there are things that were, it was like a gravitas, like a, like a pool. Like, you know, you avoid it. You don't even care about his hair. You know, you're like, whatever. Okay, people want a good king. And in Christ Jesus, we have this king who is putting his enemies, as we speak, under his feet. He is reigning and ruling, not just in the heavenly places, but in actuality right now. The Great Commission we're encouraged with, the all authority passage, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. And we all get the heaven part. Of course, Jesus has all authority. He's the king of kings in the heavenly places. He has all authority. But right now, down here, everything's so dark and dreary. Is it not? There are evil and dark things. It sure doesn't look like Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And yet, he is the good king we can follow. And his word is true. He does have all authority, whether we see it or not. And we are free to seek after Jesus Christ. Love him. Follow him. Adore him. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's the one that we get behind and we follow. He forges the way. He still rescues and redeems. He's the true and better Hosea. So now, they also come in fear and trembling to the Lord and for His goodness. Fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the later days. We have experienced the goodness of the Lord, have we not? What about this fear the Lord business? Number one, if you don't know Him, you should be terrified of him. I mean, scared to death of him. Because your life hangs in the balances and what he says goes about you. And you should be scared to death. And instead of continuing to run, you should acknowledge his rule over you and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You owe him everything. He has been gracious to you, whether you recognize it or not. So get in line with God. What about fear for the believer? We fear the Lord in a different way. 
we fear with trembling and in awe. We worship the Lord with fear and trembling. I don't exactly know. I wish I had all the answers in life, even in pastoral ministry. I don't exactly know how the fear of the work works exactly with the people of God. But I know the God of the universe is not to be messed around with, even by His people. God is not our best friend in the sense that your best friend is your best friend. He's the God of the universe. And yet He has been good to us. And fear and goodness go hand to hand. We trust Him. He's our Heavenly Father. I think some of the things, you know, some things we can think about with gravitas is that you can have a father that you love and you know he loves you. And you sit on his lap. But some of you had dads like this. And dad and I, we, we get along. But, and dad could scare me a little bit. But, but a man of gravitas, maybe you had a teacher like this. Uh, I can imagine my father-in-law being like this as a teacher. If I, I was in his class, I bet my father-in-law had a look that would have made me shake in my boots. You know, Dennis, you're like, yeah, probably. There's a gravitas. When it comes to the God of the universe, yes, He's our Father. And we are friends with God. However, He's God. And He is holy. And He is right. And everything in this universe, universe is in His hand. And your next breath is a gift from Him. And so even as a believer, there's fear, but then there's goodness. And they shall come in those latter days to know the goodness of the Lord. Certainly God had been good to Israel in the past. In Psalm 73, the psalmist, the sons of Korah said, you know, surely God has been good to Israel, but as for me, and he questioned the goodness of the Lord. But now we have come to experience the goodness of the Lord in ways that ancient people of God had never experienced the goodness of the Lord because we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have the Spirit of God within us. And that was something they longed for that we get to experience. We have the Holy Spirit within us and we have tasted the goodness of the Lord. Thanksgiving season is a good time for that. Even if it's painful for you, even if you have a family member that just died and you've experienced loss or you experienced the holidays in ways that you wish you wouldn't experience the holidays, taste and see that the Lord is good this year. Drink good drinks, eat good food, and laugh. Enjoy each other. Even, if, even that annoying uncle I talked about last week or two weeks ago, or that annoying whoever, even that annoying person in the family that you know is just so awkward and always makes thing, things awkward, laugh at the awkwardness. You know, put that, fold that story up, put it in your back pocket as you're driving home. You know, don't have any slanderous gossip, but joke about it and make fun of him for goodness sake. Can you believe he said that? Oh my gosh. And laugh about it and find joy even in the midst of that. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We are now free to enjoy the goodness of the Lord and the way ancient Israel never got to see or experience or enjoy the goodness of the Lord because we live in the latter days. Friends, this is good news. We're going to sing and I want you to enjoy the Lord. Three things to leave you with. Seek the Lord while He may be found. If you're a non-believer, come to Him. Repent and trust in Him. As believers, as the church in this room, now as free men and women who have been set free, you now have the great privilege of drawing near to God. And we have the promise, if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. God is as near as our willingness to come to Him. Come to Him. We are free to worship our King Jesus, the true and better King David, the true and better Hosea. We are free to come with fear and trembling and boldness before the throne of grace. Fear and trembling and boldness before the, the throne of grace because we have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord in the later days. Let's pray. Lord